Almighty God and Father, we worship you this morning and ask that you would send your spirit now to anoint the preaching of your word for our benefit and growth and deepening. God, we come to you in unusual times and we pray for your meeting us in power and in strength and in truth, asking that you would change us to be more like your son through your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You can be seated. It is good to be back with all of you after a few weeks away, and I must say it was quite enjoyable to be with some of you in person this morning for the first time since I started in this role in March. But I'm glad to be with all of you again virtually now at 11 o'clock. We did have a wonderful time with extended family. The purpose of our trip to Colorado was to celebrate my dad's 80th birthday from earlier this summer, and we also had a nice time as a nuclear family of six. One of the things that we did was take a five-day backpacking trip in the Rockies. And on the last day, as we were hiking out, our kids ran on ahead of us with their backpacks. We're at that scary stage in life where our kids are more physically capable and certainly more physically resilient than their mother and me. Uh, We were lagging behind, and I said to Mandy, you know, this has been, the word that keeps coming to my, my mind is reset. This has been like a reset this time away for me, which has been really helpful uh, if you're ever working on a computer and it, you've tried everything and it doesn't work, you finally reboot it and restart it. And in, in many ways, that was what this trip did for, at least for my soul, and I'm grateful. We are uh, glad to be back and looking forward to deepening our ministry among you in the coming months and Lord willing years ahead. We're jumping back into First Peter today and we're nearing the end after several weeks of reflecting on suffering in chapters three and four. We Now move with Peter into chapter 5. We'll be in verses 1 through 5 of that chapter today, where Peter offers instructions to church leaders. In any church, in any time, when there is a breakdown between pastors and elders and the congregation, there are problems. The, The church's ministry and witness are certainly diminished. We become distracted and more prone to the attacks of the enemy. Peter will go on in a moment to talk about Uh, The devil that prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to to devour. And we are far more susceptible to discouragement and disillusionment when those relationships are broken. The Christians in Asia Minor in the first century, they had plenty of other issues and problems to worry about. The last thing that they needed was an unhealthy set of relationships within the church. And so Peter writes with specific instructions to the elders in particular, their leaders, And his aim is to encourage health, certainly in the churches of that day. You might think for a moment, well, I'm not a church leader, I'm not an elder, I'm not a pastor, so verses 1 through 4 of this text don't apply in my life. But I trust that we'll see that these words do apply, that what Peter encourages applies not just to elders, but to anyone serving in a leadership role within the Christian church or ministry, whether that's in hosting or ushering or hospitality or TNO or our COVID-19 response teams and so on. If you're involved in Christian ministry and all of us as followers of Jesus are in some way in this, then what Peter shares to the elders here does apply to our lives. I trust we'll see that. Also, as we turn to verse 5, Peter gives two exhortations, one to those who are not elders. I'll explain that when we get there. And then a second one to all of us. So our plan in tackling this text this morning is to take these three exhortations in turn. We'll spend most of our time on the first one, which Peter gives in verse 2 and then expands through verse 4, and then we'll spend a brief time looking at the last two in verse 
5. Again, all of these encouraging the church to be healthy. So first, in verse 2, shepherd God's flock. The NIV has be shepherds of God's flock, but it's better translated, the word there is a verb, shepherd. It's an imperative. Shepherd God's flock. That's the exhortation. Do this as overseers, Peter says, at the, as he goes on in verse 2. Timothy Whitmer, in his book, The Shepherd Leader, which was published about 10 years ago, unpacks the task of shepherding with these four responsibilities. Know, feed, lead, and protect. So to the elders and pastors of this church, I ask, do we know, feed, lead, and protect the congregation that has been put under our care, as Peter says? Or to all of us who are involved in leadership of some kind, do we know, feed, lead, and protect the brothers and sisters with whom we are ministering and serving? This is the primary focus of leadership in the church, to shepherd. And that means that leadership in the church is primarily about people, which is both wonderful and challenging. Last fall, when I was walking through the discernment process with the senior minister search committee, I had to fill out some written uh, paperwork and answer some questions. And one question was, what do you love most about ministry in the local church? And my answer was pretty easy and simple. I said, people. I love calling people to an exclusive love for Jesus and to working that, the implications of that out in our lives. The next question in the written responses was, what about ministry in the local church frustrates you? And it was actually pretty easy to answer that too. I said, people. Um, and that includes me. We are broken and sinful. We're messy. We hurt each other. And that makes ministry in the church at times hard and unglamorous. And it is true. Being about people, which of course comes alongside our worship of God and our focus upon God, is the primary calling of church leaders in any capacity. And it's both glorious and gloriously challenging. I would say it's actually easier to focus on big visions, on daring ministry projects, on running programs and events, on doing different kinds of ministry together. And all of that, of course, is part of the church and part of leadership in the church. But Peter's opening exhortation, Shepherd God's Flock, reminds all leaders that the church and the ministry of the church is about people. I wonder if that's reflected in the way that we spend our time or in the way that we pray. We might ask, where did Peter learn this focus? And we need to go back to his own commissioning, his own story, which is very clearly in his mind as he teaches the churches in Asia Minor. Remember, Peter says that I am exhorting you as a fellow elder in verse 1, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. No doubt as Peter reflects on the sufferings of Christ, he must remember his own role in making those sufferings more acute as he denied Jesus three times. Many of you will remember the story from John chapter 21. After the resurrection, the disciples had gone fishing. They hadn't caught anything. There's this man on the shore who yells out, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. They do. They haul in this big catch of fish, 153 of them. And Peter recognizes the man on the shore is the resurrected Jesus. And so he strips off his outer garments and jumps in the sea and swims to shore to be near Jesus. And what does he find on the shore? He finds a fire, which is significant because the denials that Peter had issued of 
his not knowing Jesus took place beside a fire when Peter was warming himself in the courtyard. There's a fish already being prepared and Jesus tenderly cares for his disciples and feeds them breakfast. And then he has this exchange with Peter to reinstate him. Three times he asks Peter, do you love me? And three times Peter says, yes, I do. And then three times Jesus gives Peter an exhortation. The first and the third are the same. Feed my sheep. The second, the middle exhortation in verse 16 of John 21. He says, tend or shepherd my flock, my sheep. It's the same verb used in verse 16 of John 21. That Peter now uses here in 1 Peter 5 verse 2 to exhort the elders. He had learned this from his master, from the risen king Jesus. This is the priority. To be personal. To know, lead, protect, and and care for the sheep. It's wonderful, isn't it, that Jesus taught Peter this in his own commissioning. And of course, as Jesus illustrates this in his life, he's reflecting the heart of God for his people. Psalm 23, the most well-known of the Psalter, the psalm. God is cast in terms of a caring shepherd, and we are the sheep. In Luke 15, Jesus teaches and puts God in the framework of a shepherd who runs after the lost sheep to find him and bring him back home. God demonstrates the the knowing, feeding, leading, and protecting of a good shepherd. Sadly, as we read about in Jeremiah 23, the leaders, the shepherds that God had put over his people in the old covenant were not faithful to the heart of God. Instead of serving the sheep, they served themselves. And as Jeremiah says in verse 1 of that chapter, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. These shepherds have scattered the sheep and driven them away. And it says they have not bestowed care on them. That verb there in the Septuagint is the same verb in John 21 and in 1 Peter 5 to shepherd. This is exactly what those Old covenant leaders did not do for God's people. But God says in verses 5 and 6 of Jeremiah 23 that he he speaks of a day when he will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is right and just in the land. And that king and that righteous branch is, of course, the great David's greater son, Jesus, who comes and walks among his people and says when he is among us in John chapter 10, I am the what? The good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me and I lay down my life for my sheep I don't serve myself but I lay down my life this good shepherd Peter calls in verse 4 of our passage the chief shepherd who then appoints under shepherds those whom he has tasked with shepherding his people under his authority on his behalf to reflect the heart of God This is what Peter calls them to do. Be these good shepherds, empowered now by the Spirit, forgiven through the cross. Shepherd God's flock that is under your care. What I love about this exhortation is it reminds us that the heart of God is a heart to shepherd. This is personal. It's about people. It's so easy at times to make church in the modern world about programs and numbers and metrics and it's not it's about people who are messy and hard to love and beautiful and wonderful and we're all in that category and the God that we serve and love is the God who knows us cares for us feeds us protects us and leads us and that's what he's about in a church to be the church in a healthy way needs to be a church that does shepherding really well that is the heart it's about people 
in verses 2 and 3, Peter gives three qualifications to this exhortation that I do want us to look at. They're contrasts that he offers. First, he says, I want you to shepherd God's flock as overseers, not under compulsion or not because you must, as the NIV has it, but because you are willing or willingly, deliberately, and intentionally. Those of us with kids or those of us who live around kids know very well what it's like to see someone do something because they must. When we ask our kids to clean up their rooms or take out the trash or to clean up the kitchen, there is often, not always, but definitely sometimes, a a dragging of the feet, a furrowing of the brow, a sigh of defeat. And that's just not the mark of the work of leadership in the church. Instead of that begrudging way, there is to be a willingness and a readiness among leaders for how they take up the responsibilities that God has entrusted to them. And this is what God values in all of our serving. Remember 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, each one must make up, must, must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. That's the same word for doing something because you must. And then this line that many of us know, for God loves a cheerful giver. That kind of attitude that Paul commends of us as we give our financial resources is the same attitude that Peter here commends to shepherds, to elders in the church. Our heart matters in this. If you're furrowing your brow and dragging your feet and in all of this, then that's a good indication that you're not operating in the grace of God in the service to which he has called you. There is no doubt a burden to leaders in the church. Paul As he lists off his burdens and sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, On top of all of these, I have the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And that kind of anxiety is a a burden that's uniquely borne by church leaders. But Peter tells us to take this up willingly. How is your service of God being offered in your life right now? If it's a forced march, then I would encourage you to seek out counsel and prayer and support in some ways. God loves a cheerful giver, a cheerful shepherd, a cheerful hospitality coordinator, a cheerful teacher, a cheerful bulletin folder, a cheerful choir member. Anytime we're giving our time, talent, or treasure, God is pleased with a willing heart. So that's the first qualification, willingly. The second one, still in verse two, not greedy for money, Peter says, shepherd in this way, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Another way that we could say this is that Christian leadership is not about what you can get, but about what you can give. The driving force of the elder, of the leader, of Christian leadership in general, and I would argue of all good leadership, whether it's Christian or not, is how can I give to those around me so that they might thrive? That's what shepherding means. Give time and resources, physical, mental, and emotional resources, To provide for those sheep that God has put under your care. I love the way Paul describes his own heart in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 15. I will gladly spend, he says, and be spent for your souls. He offers this picture of pouring out his life for the sake of those that God had called him to lead. And that is motivated by love. It could not be motivated by anything else. Love says, what can I give? How can I pour out my life for the good of another? Jesus says in that passage on the Good Shepherd in John 10 that the hired hand, when the wolf comes, runs away. 
If your motivation is anything other than love, when Christian ministry and particularly Christian leadership gets hard, and it will, when criticism increases, when burdens are heavy, then it will be quick. We will be quick to run away, to step out. It's only love, the love of God for us, that then gets transformed into our love for his people and his church that leads us to stay and to be faithful and to shepherd well. This is to be our motivation. It is love that kept Jesus on the cross when he was tempted by those around him. He said, if you are the son of God, come down and show us. It's love that holds him there, bearing the cost of being the good shepherd for his sheep. Peter's third qualification in verse 3. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, he says, but being examples to the flock. Let's think about for a moment on this third qualification, what Jesus said and what Jesus did. First, Jesus said this to his disciples. This was his teaching. You know, Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was his teaching to the disciples. What did he do? Think about John 13. He gets up from the table after dinner, ties the towel around his waist, takes on the position of a servant and washes his disciples' feet. He emptied himself and made himself nothing. And he said, I do this to give you an example that you might follow in my footsteps. Go where I have gone. Do what I have done. Jesus did not lord it over us, though he could have. But he came to be an example to us. An example of one eager to serve. One marked by love. Who would pour his life out. Even for us. One of the things that we did on our backpacking trip. Is we summited La Plata. Which is a a 14,000 foot peak in Colorado. And we did it on a non-route. Because we came up from the basin. In which we had pitched our tent. And as you climb a 14er, many of you have probably had this experience in other mountains, but there, there are large boulder fields. We call them talus fields. And they're quite tricky for hiking. You have to step from boulder to boulder, and sometimes they can move, and they take a, a bit of practice to get used to. I, I love it. It's one of my favorite ways to hike. There are many times that we were walking through talus fields, and we had to do many, many of them, that I would say to my kids, kids, stay close to me and walk where I walk. Step where I step. Not on that rock, but on this rock. Follow me in this way and do what I'm doing that you can get across this talus field. That's the call upon a a Christian leader. It is to live life in such a way that we could say to others, imitate me as I imitate Christ, which is what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1. We are to hold up through our lives an example to the church of how to navigate the complexity and challenges of life by faith. In Jesus. This is a high bar, of course, and it's possible only by the grace of God and only by the Spirit of God at work in our lives. But it is possible because of the Spirit, and it is the calling upon leaders in the church. I think Peter knows just how hard this will be because 
Having given these three qualifications of this exhortation, shepherd God's flock, he then goes in verse 4 to talk about the reward, to talk about what's coming to those who would labor faithfully in God's vineyard in this way, who would shepherd carefully and like Jesus shepherded in their lives. In the Greco-Roman world, crowns were given to those athletes who won competitions. And Peter says in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. We got a modern day representation of that ancient practice of an olive wreath being put on an athlete's head in the 2004 summer games in Athens of the Olympics. But those crowns would fade and Peter contrasts the crown here that with those kinds of crowns is saying they will never fade this glory that Jesus will give you. Therefore, be encouraged, those of you serving in leadership, and do so willingly and eager to serve, not for selfish gain, and living an exemplary exemplary life and not lording over those that have been entrusted to you. Instead, take the lower place like Jesus took. Of course, those three qualifications are most embodied in the life and ministry of Jesus. He came willingly and laid his life down. He served eagerly, looking for ways to love even his enemies. And he came not lording it over, but being an example. Jesus is the great paradigm for all Christian leadership. That's the end of the first exhortation and our reflections upon it. Much more briefly now, I'd like to turn to the two exhortations in verse 5. And so the second exhortation that Peter gives, the first one in verse 5, is having addressed the elders, he now addresses those who are not elders. The NIV translates this word younger men which is fair and a possible reading but it's also possible to understand this reference to the younger as those who are not holding the role of elder in the church so it not only indicates something of age but also something of position within the body of Christ many commentators both modern and ancient have seen this kind of strand here at work and in that sense it's it's a simple exhortation it is an exhortation to submit to the elders of the church for keeping good order in the church. Like the call that Peter gave to all of us in chapter 2 verse 13 where he said submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He now applies this idea of submission within the church as well and says for the health of the body, for the flourishing of the church, those who are not elders are to have a, a posture of deference to those who are in leadership positions, a posture that will ultimately lead them and their leaders to grow into greater spiritual maturity together. This, of course, does not mean that blind obedience is to be given to those who serve in leadership positions in the church, but rather a posture of deference. Of course, every human being is capable of mishandling authority and position that has been entrusted to him or her. And that kind of position needs to be held in check in a proper way by all of us as we are together submitted under the chief shepherd, our great king. But Peter commends this to the younger, to those who are not elders. Good leaders in the church require good followers in the church. And in a sense, that's what Peter is encouraging for good order, for the health and strengthening of the body, that we all might grow to maturity and build ourselves up in love, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. The final exhortation that he gives, which is in verse 5, he directs to everyone and is actually what I would say far more important for the health of the church than any of the others. And it's an exhortation simply to humility. He gives this to all, he says, and he says, I want you to clothe yourselves in humility. 
That word for clothing yourself is a little different than the word that's used usually in the New Testament, like in Colossians 3.12. In this case, the word is more specific, and it means to tie on a garment around oneself, something like a garment would be a servant's apron or a servant's garment. We remember then Jesus, as we saw, tying the towel around his waist in John 13. We are to take up the servant's posture and garment and called to, to humility. I would argue that more than any other virtue, the virtue of humility, which is unique in the first century context, Christians brought this on the map because, of course, Jesus embodied it for us. The Greco-Roman culture saw this virtue as only fitting for the weak or the lowly, but the Christians saw it as something fitting for all because it was fitting for their Lord. That this would transform the church if we all walked in humility toward one another. Three things that a humble person sees really clearly, just briefly. First, we see our sin. We recognize that we are broken, that we are not what we were meant to be, that we are not the full person that God has created us to be, that we're often distorted in our ends and means, and we have a clear understanding of our own sin. But second, we see the glory, holiness, and majesty of God. We see God reigning and ruling, God the creator and the redeemer, God holy, holy, holy. And we see the contrast between us and God. And then thirdly, we see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the reality that this holy God entered into our unholy and broken and sinful world and didn't just enter in, but took the posture of a servant as a true Christian leader would, as Jesus did, and went to the cross that we might have that gap bridged, that we might be brought into fellowship, as in Psalm 23, that we might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those three things, our sin, the glory and holiness of God, and the reality of God bridging the gap that we might know him and be in his presence. That is what a humble person sees more than anything else. John Newton, of course, the famous hymn writer of Amazing Grace, famously remarked near the end of his life, he said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. This is, in fact, the truth, the fundamental truth for all of us. And Peter in encourages and exhorts everyone, leaders and non-leaders, to have humility toward one another because this kind of posture toward one another is what will enable healthy relationships and the right kind of back and forth and enable us to walk forward and to discern God's will together and to care for one another and to be tender with one another as God's shepherd heart asks of us. Peter uh, supports his, uh, this final exhortation by quoting from Proverbs 3, verse 34. This is also quoted in James 4, 6 as well. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why does that matter? Why do we want to be rid of our own pride? Because God opposes the proud. And because we need God more than we need anything else in the world. So may we pray and ask God to reveal the pride in our own hearts that we might confess it and repent of it and push it away that we might be the humble because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God gives himself to the humble. Blessed, Jesus says, are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is at the heart of God's kingdom that we would be a humble people. So Peter says, put on this humility toward one another. Wear this in your relationships with one another. This is what we desperately need. On our trip to Colorado, my dad 
shared a story with me about a, a young man in a church who was working late one Friday night, cleaning up the kitchen and getting things ready for the conference the church was going to host the, that weekend. And an older gentleman walked into the kitchen that he didn't recognize, kind of startled the young man, and he said, can I help you? And the older man said, well, I'm, I'm looking for a place to stay. And the young man was taken a little bit, by, again, by surprise, but uh, offered to show him Christian hospitality and took him into the gymnasium and set up a little cot for him and gave him a little bit to eat and let him sleep there for the night, went back and finished his duties. And it shocked him the next morning. It shocked all the church leaders the next morning when they woke up and went to the church and discovered that their keynote speaker for the conference had been sleeping on the gymnasium floor the night before. This was a man that all, many of you will know his name. It was Dr. Francis Schaefer about whom this story is told. A man who had a great reputation, who had reason to kind of glory in his position as one of the great teachers of the church in the mid-20th century that God had used powerfully, and yet a man who demonstrated tremendous humility in that encounter when no one was looking, not to glory in his position, but to take the lower place, to receive in a way, not to embarrass this young man, but to receive his simple acts of hospitality. That is the kind of humility that we are to embody as servants of the high king, as sinners saved by grace. I close by saying, how can we grow? How can we grow in this? Whether we're leaders in the church, we're elders or pastors or leaders of other kind, or we're all certainly followers in one way or another, and we're all called to this path of humility. I would submit to you it's only by encountering the humble king himself that we can grow as humble followers of Jesus, as humble leaders, as willing shepherds. It's only by constantly engaging with and interacting with and encountering Jesus, the one true king, whose love for us so deeply humbles us, whose forgiveness was purchased for us by the blood, by his own blood, who laid his life down that we might have life, who took our chains that we might go free. The beautiful path of Christian discipleship is the path of relating to this king, knowing him personally, engaging him, understanding him. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, how can I grow in humility, but you don't really know Jesus, there is no other way. This is the way that God's word teaches to us. It is to encounter this king through his word, through prayer, through Christian community, through silence and solitude, to come near to his presence and so be transformed and changed not into those who lord it over or somehow impressed with ourselves, but those who, because we know this king, know our own need much more deeply, know our own dependency much more thoroughly, and have been commissioned by him now to go back into his world and to shepherd and to care for, to tend and to love those around us with a humble heart. I long for us to grow in this as a community at Park Street Church, to grow in humility, to be clothed in this virtue together because we know Jesus, that we might be healthy and robust and faithful in our ministry and our witness as aliens and strangers in this world. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that by your grace and spirit, you would fill each one of us that knows you And I pray specifically that you would humble us. That where we are secretly pleased with ourselves, impressed with ourselves, thinking of ourselves as better than other people, you would expose these things 
that we might repent of them, that we might renounce them, and that we might be free from them. Oh God, lead us to your son Jesus. Lead us to look upon his face. Lead us to rest in his presence. God, lead us to be sheep of the great and good shepherd. And may we be like him as we know him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.